Good morning. Hope everybody's doing awesome. So when I was uh, about three or four, my parents would go out to dinner after church. They would go to this one particular restaurant that I liked because they had this little corner there. Uh, they had put in two or three arcade games. And, uh, I, you know, as a kid, moving pixels on a screen. And you know what I'm talking about, the big, big console uh, boxes. And uh, what they discovered is, you know, I, I, inflation hasn't changed the price of an arcade game. It's 25 cents uh, however long ago. And it, they would put 25 cents in there, and then I would immediately grab that joystick, and I would drive Miss Pac-Man right into the ghosts immediately. Game over. Oh, another 25 cents. So it could get really expensive really quick when you're mean. And uh, so what they discovered at one point is that three- or four-year-old Patrick actually didn't know the difference between when they had put a quarter in the slot and when they hadn't. And so they could just pull a chair up to the front of the box and they could stand me up on that chair and I could grip that joystick and I could move the thing around thinking I was doing something and having no control over what was going on on the screen at all. I may not be the brightest uh, bulb in the box, that could be it too, but the tradition continues. I did that with my son when he was three or four. And it saves you a lot of money. I mean, a quarter could be a lot of money. Feeling like you have control when you don't. I think that it's very important for us to have working in our minds some sort of like framework that we can attach uh, as we talk about this topic. Because I think what we're going to talk about is going to be um, a little, uh, it's going to make us a little nervous. And the premise that we're starting off this morning with is this. And I think this is one that it's very possible you in the room may not agree. And the premise is this. We have less control over our lives than we are comfortable admitting. We have less control over our lives than we are comfortable admitting. Which means life is more like little Patrick holding the joystick, thinking he's doing something, but he's not. Now, I want you to sit with that because I understand that you're like, well, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. If I eat donuts, I gain weight. If I stop eating donuts, I gain less weight. But some of you know that you've hit an age where even if you think about donuts, you gain weight. You just don't, it's just the way it is. And some of you, today, it was a crisis of your faith. We did not have donuts at church this morning, and it really bothered some people. Some people were like, I just don't know if I can go to church here anymore. If there's no donuts, what is there to look forward to? Man shall not live by donuts alone, folks. But we feel like, wait a second, okay, if I do this thing, then this is the consequence. Well, yes, yes, obviously, our actions have consequences, and we will deal with that in a minute. But we have less control over the circumstances of our lives than we are comfortable admitting. Now, don't take my word for it. I haven't, you know, lived long enough to know of every circumstance. But I want you to uh, take the book of James, chapter 4, and I want you to read through this with me. And just to understand, this is a premise that James, and, and who claims, by the way, to be the brother of Christ talks about that we have less control than we're comfortable admitting. James chapter 4, verse 13. He says, now listen. And it's a really kind of brusque statement. It's like, you know, a parent who's kind of finally had it with their kids, and they're just like, hey, listen. And now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go do this or that, uh, to this or that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. 
Oh, that sounds good. Now, I know most of us, when we read a verse like that, I'm not a super like awesome type A, have my sock drawer organized type of guy. That's not who I am. I'm trying to get better, trying to do better. But I know some of you are thinking in here, all right, this is for people who really plan things out, who have to have all their I's dotted and their T's crossed, who have to have all their ducks in a nice little row. This is for people like that. And, and really, James is talking to everybody. Everybody kind of likes to have a sense of certainty about what's coming. Nobody in the room is going to wake up tomorrow and have your spouse ask you, hey, are you going to work today? You're not going to say, I don't know. I might, I might not. Just playing it fast and loose. Like we know, we know what's coming, at least even if it's 60 minutes or, 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 or a day or a week or a month or even a year. But James chapter 4 talks about this idea that you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Well, yes, I do. I can look it up on my calendar and I know it's going to go to work. Same old Monday. It's going to be the same thing. He says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Early this year, earlier this year, I take uh, Mondays as my day off. It seems to work for me. And I'll usually like, I'll go on a hike or I'll do something. And, you know, I, it was earlier this year, warmer weather. And I had, was coming back to my car. I'd gone along this hike along the Mississippi. And I was parked along a residential road, really nice area. On one side's the Mississippi with these bluffs. On the other side, this really nice house. really expensive, fancy houses. And I'm going back to my car where I had parked it. And I hear this sound, kind of that unmistakable sound of like metal on metal, like a car accident, you know, something scraping. And I turn and I look and I see this red SUV that is plowed into a street sign. I'm like, wow, wow, okay, a little excitement for my Monday morning. But the SUV keeps coming. Now, I'm, it's coming not toward me exactly. I'm on the opposite, opposite side of the street. But it keeps moving. And as it's moving, it's pinballing off of the curb and jumping up onto the sidewalk. It's taking out mailboxes and it's sideswiping cars. This is like 10 a.m. in the morning. And I'm across the street and, you know, I'm, I happened to, somebody had called me and I'm like, I got to go. I got to call 911. It felt really important for about two seconds. So I call 911 and I run closer to where this is happening. This SUV is still, you know, careening down the road. There is a lady who is walking her dog across the street. And, of course, she sees this and she has to run up onto the porch to get out of the way of this car that is now on the curb and I, I'm across the way I don't want to get in front of this thing but I'm across the way on my phone trying to call 911 and it just felt like just you know those moments where things slow down this guy whoever it was he had his window down and I'm just watching him as he drives by just causing mass destruction in his wake and he kind of rounded a corner off in the distance and I'm just like what in the world? You couldn't warn anybody? There is a crazy man coming. I don't know if it was a medical emergency. I don't know if he was drunk. But all I know is that there was chaos, just like just driving down the street, causing destruction, just chaos. Like you couldn't, nobody could have anticipated that coming. We've all had experiences like that where something happened. But it was just, it was completely out of the blue. And, and that's just a minor example. It didn't phase me, but it affected a bunch of people, a bunch of insurance claims. I mean, now James is being generous by saying, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Because the truth of the matter is, we don't know what will happen in the next 60 seconds. James is saying, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But the truth is, we don't know what's going to happen in an hour from now. We have no idea. You all have moments where life happened and it happened without warning and things changed in fact for some of you your life is marked by before and after that event whatever it was it's it's marked 
That is your BC and your AD in your life. That is the event where you think back, like, when was that? And it, it, it just determines, like, it determines the trajectory and the course of your life, and you couldn't have anticipated. It divides your time. You, so to speak, are standing at the video game, and you are tightly gripping the joystick, and you think you're doing something, but life is happening. Life is happening. Now, by the way, before you think James is just like making stuff up now, he's directly quoting um, a couple of Old Testament authors. He quotes wisdom literature, and that's the Psalms, the Proverbs. I love this kind of stuff. But he's, he's quoting Old Testament scripture, but they didn't quote it by saying book, chapter, and verse. They just quoted it by saying it. And he's actually quoting Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. He goes, don't boast about tomorrow. And James is going to use that boast language in a few verses. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You don't know. Amen. You just don't know. And then before you, you know, some of you are like, man, it's such a nice day, Patrick. Do we have to talk about like the uncontrolled circumstances of our life? Can't we just talk about something nice and happy for once? Well, James is about to get a little darker. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to apologize, but I think that we need to talk about it. We need to think about it. James actually goes on to say in verse uh, 14, he says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You're a, you're a vapor, a puff of smoke, that's all. And he's, he's totally channeling some, some, uh, some psalms when he says that. That's bleak. How about that for a birthday card? Anybody celebrating a birthday? You were here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> That'd be awful. Our culture discourages us from thinking about our eternal reality. We, don't, we, we try to keep it as far away from ourselves as possible. This has not always been true. Um, some of you probably are familiar with the, uh, the textbook for the American colonies. Uh, it was called the New England Primer. And it was the book that they used for 150 years. And you know how if you go to a kindergarten now, by the way, uh, my, my little guy came home, he's in second grade, and he's like, hey dad, can you help me with algebra? Buddy, I had to drop out of algebra in high school because, yeah, I couldn't help myself with algebra. But, but for 150 years, they used the New England Primer, and um, it was first published in 1688. 1688. And so, you know, when you go to a kindergarten class, A is for apple, right? You know, um, and then the real tough ones that you have to think about, X is for X-ray. But they couldn't use X-ray uh, back in 1688, they had to come up with something else. There goes no x-rays. You know, Y is always tough. It feels like Y is always yak. Y is for yak. Well, I want you to see what they used in the New England Primer. These are Puritans that wrote this. But this is T. T. T is for time. Cuts down all, both great and small. <laughs> These are kids learning their alphabet. Hey, little Johnny, you're turning three now. I think it's time that uh, we talked about the reality of death. And look at the picture. It's like some, like, it's a guy with horns in a, in a scythe. I mean, that's pretty wild. How would you feel if you, as an, a parent, went to your uh, parent-teacher conference and you walked in the room and you're like, yeah, we're working on uh, the reality of death for these three-year-olds. You'd be like, I think we're going to find a new school. 150 years, this shaped American education and culture. Uh, here's what they did for X. X was for Xerxes the Great did die, and so will you and I. <laughs> I'm 
many of you think I'm making these up? I'm not making these up. These are actual pictures from the book. And there is a dead Xerxes there on the woodprint. All right, kids, <laughs> who's up for some alphabet? Y stands for youth forward slips and death soonest nips. I don't know, I don't know what's better. I don't know if it's better that we've softened things up a little bit or if they had something figured out that we don't. But, but I, I will say that for us, as, as present a reality as death is, we still exist under quite an illusion about death. We still keep it at arm's length. We don't talk about it. But James says, listen, your life is a mist. Same word for smoke or, or, or vapor or breath. Your life is a breath on a cold morning when you can see your breath. It's my life. That's Patrick. Psalm 39.5, this is who James is channeling when he writes that. He says, everyone is but a breath, even those who seem most secure. Last Sunday, a lot of us heard the news about Kobe Bryant. And just, you know, some of you are like, Kobe who? But for, for some of us, he's kind of like a... I don't know, an important figure. And he just, it was so shocking because here's a person who has achieved like, like the height of success and wealth and it didn't protect him or the other people in the helicopter. It, 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 we are but a breath. Even those who seem secure, we're but a breath. And I know this isn't fun to talk about, but we have to understand one of the truths, one of the central truths of the Bible that we have less control over our lives than we are comfortable admitting. Well, it's important to talk about what we should not include, uh, conclude by that fact. The wrong conclusions would be to say something like, because uh, some of you are like, well, pff, we don't have any control. Um, uh, I, I'm, you know, what, Nietzsche was right. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. And, and it would be a wrong conclusion for us to leave here and say, it's all meaningless. It doesn't matter what I do. It's all meaningless. That would be a, a wrong conclusion to think. It, it matters what we do. It, you, don't stop filing your taxes and eating vegetables because it matters. These things matter. They do have an impact on our lives, but we have less control than we realize. And another faulty conclusion would be, I'm not responsible. We may not be able to control every circumstance, but we do have agency over our responses to what life throws at us. We have agency. And sometimes life is not fair. And some of you have been subjected to things that are not fair. And you feel like you are victims of your life. But you have agency. As difficult as it has maybe made for you to make certain choices, we have that. We have been given that. And maybe at, at such a disadvantage, and maybe it's harder for you to make simple choices than it might be for someone else, but it does matter. It's not meaningless, and we are, we do, are responsible for the way that we react to it and the way that we handle it and what we do with what we've been given. So this is to say that you can continue to drink those kale smoothies till you're green in the face, but you still might die. It's not going to protect you from that. You can grip the joystick and you can hope that you're doing whatever it takes to make sure that you've got life figured out and life can still happen to you. This is what he goes on to say. Instead, verse 15, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it is the Lord's will. I didn't like this verse for a long time because the way I understood it and the way I had it interpreted to me is that this was some sort of like Christian superstition where if you said these words at the end of your plans, then God would let you do whatever you had been planning. 
Oh, you know, I'm going to go make chili for dinner, Lord willing. I'll email you the proposal, Lord willing. Hey, honey, we're having uh, liver and onions for dinner tonight, if the Lord wills. Darling, could you take out the trash? Sure, Lord willing. And it's great to consider God in our plans, but he's not trying to give you some magical incantation that you can control God with. It's not something that we get to decide what God does and doesn't do just because we said Lord willing at the end of a statement. And I'm not saying if you want to incorporate that phrase into every plan you make, feel free. Absolutely feel free. And you can find examples of New Testament authors working that phrase into their language. But you can find many more examples of where they didn't use the phrase, but they took God into account for their plans. They accounted for God and who he was and his will in the plans that they made. And I would rather we do that than feel like we're covered because we said, Lord willing, at the end of a phrase. He's not challenging our words. He's challenging our worldview. He's not challenging our plans. He's challenging our presumption. That's what he's talking about. And just don't forget how little control you have and who does have control. So here's a basic universal truth. This is regardless, it seems to be true regardless of culture or nationality or economic background. This is true for everybody, um, no matter who they are. When people are confronted by their inability to control a situation, they tend to pray. No matter who they are. No matter what religion that they practice, they tend to pray. When people are confronted by their inability to control a situation, they pray. Uh, there was a poll in, uh, in, in, uh, in Great Britain by the paper The Guardian, and it talked about 50% of the people they polled prayed, and only 25% of those people believed in God. Of the people that prayed, only 25% believed in God, which means people who did not believe in God were praying. Why? Because they figured out, oh, I don't have control over a situation. I better do something And the something that they could figure out to do was to pray. The University of Rochester here in the United States found that four out of five Americans pray when they get sick. There's something about getting sick that just brings out the little, you know, child in us because we're like, ah, my stomach hurts. God, please stop this. And this was like atheists and career criminals. Just everybody prays when they get sick. Our prayer lives become more active when we become more aware of our lack of control. You have experienced this. You've experienced this in in great and small ways. You've experienced this when you polished up that resume and you made yourself sound really good and you got out the best tie and you asked your wife, which one looks better for me for this interview? And you went to that interview and you did the best you could in that interview. You thought you nailed it. And then the person says, all right, we'll get back to you. And then you went home and you're like, I don't know what to do now. I don't have any more control. And some of you prayed, God, please let me get this job. Some of you have been in a hospital with a sick relative or or a sick child, and the doctors had said, we're going to take some tests, and we'll send them off, and we'll get them back, but we don't know. We're not sure. We're not sure what's going to happen. We're not sure what's going on. And you prayed because you were confronted with your lack of control over the situation. Some of you have been on a flight, and you hit severe turbulence, and all of a sudden, your prayer life maybe hasn't been so good in years You prayed because you didn't have control. And we pray when we realize that we lack control over a situation. So we are embarking. We're at the very front end of this series called The Illusion of Control. But what we're saying is that when we are confronted by that illusion of control, we seek prayer. And hopefully in this room, we seek God in 
prayer. And this is what I want us to hear. Number one, prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Should be our first response, not our last resort. It should be accounting for God and our plans, big and small, whether or not we realize we have control or realize we don't. But secondly, and this is important, prayer isn't about controlling the outcome. It's about knowing God. I want you to think about questions that you ask yourself or others when it feels like your prayer doesn't get the outcome you prayed for. Maybe I didn't pray right. Maybe I didn't use the right words. Maybe I didn't pray the right way. Maybe I should have prayed on my knees or in a closet. Maybe I didn't pray long enough. Maybe I didn't pray loud enough. Imagine being a parent and your children come to you and they ask for something ridiculous like a pony. And you say, no, you cannot have a pony. (laughs) Imagine then that they gathered in the kitchen while you were in the living room and they begin to discuss with one another. Huh, I wonder why dad said We couldn't have a pony. Maybe we didn't ask right. Maybe we didn't use the right words. Maybe we didn't ask the right way. Maybe we didn't ask long enough or loud enough. Or maybe the answer is no pony. Maybe that's just the answer. Well, wait a second. What if, because what we're saying is, is if we do it just right, if we pull the lever just right, God will give us the answer we want. And what we're saying is maybe prayer is another way to control God. And it's not. We cannot control our lives through prayer. What we do is get to know God and his heart and his will and his perspective. That's what happens through prayer. And you will find more often than not, when you pray that way, your prayers change. Because you begin to realize the things you're asking for are probably not things that God's going to give you because of what you're asking. Now I know everybody has questions because you're thinking, but I prayed for my grandmother and she was in the hospital and I prayed that she would get better and she didn't and God wasn't listening and maybe I didn't do it right. Or maybe that wasn't the answer God was going to give to you. Those questions come from presumptions that if we crack the code, we can get God to do what we want him to do. And that's not what prayer is. That's not what this relationship has ever been. Richard Foster wrote a book about prayer, and he has this quote that I thought was so illuminating about this idea. He goes, we assume that prayer is something we master the way we master algebra, evidently in the second grade now, or auto mechanics. We are competent and in control. When we pray, we deliberately surrender control because we recognize that that control is an illusion. I want to wrap up by just sharing a, a story um, that, I, that I read. It was uh, by an author by the name of Ben Patterson. And he wrote a book called Prayer, Deepening Your Conversation with God. And uh, he, talked about, <laughs> he talked about rupturing two vertebrae. And he said it was so bad that the doctor said, Here's, you need to go on six weeks of bed rest to figure out whether or not we can even do surgery. That's how bad this is. And so, you know, illusion of control, you begin to like, oh, man, okay, six weeks of bed rest, what am I going to do? And, you know, you would think, well, I'll get some of my reading done, you know, I'll watch some Netflix. But he was on muscle relaxants, uh, relaxants, uh, and he was on um, uh, pain medication, and he said he couldn't even control, like, his focus. So everything just was blurry. He couldn't read, and he couldn't watch TV. And so he was just sitting there, and he said, I'd like to say that it was uh, godliness and spirituality that drove me to prayer, but it was pure boredom. I didn't know what else to do. And so he started praying for everybody at their church 
And so every day, that was his prayer appointment. And he would pray by name for everybody that he went to church with. And the six weeks went by. And at first, he said it was just tough. You know, you would pray and pray and pray. And then you would be like 15 minutes went by. But as time went on, he felt like he, it, it, he, he got a sense of this. And it began to last an hour and then two hours as the time goes on. And as he began to get to the end of the six weeks, he started to realize that he was going to miss this. He was going to miss this time of prayer. And so at the end of the six weeks he prayed, he was like, God, thank you for giving me this extra time in my life to pray. And he said, I immediately heard a response from God. And whether it's his conscience or God, and he, this is, you can read the book if you, if you want, if want to quote me. But the response said, hey, stupid, you have always had the same amount of time to pray. But when you were healthy, you thought you were in control. And when you were sick, you realized you weren't. We all, we, we all have the same 24 hours. But the, the difference is, is we walk around thinking that we've got it all figured out and that we've got life by the tail. And we don't. Control is an illusion. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. And so prayer should be our first response, not our last resort when the veil, when the illusion is torn away. We're going to enter into uh, three more weeks of talking about prayer, and we're not going to we're not going to talk about death every week. So if you're like, man, I brought my friend today, and you just talked about death the whole time, we're going to talk about what it means to truly like make this our first priority, and and how prayer can transform us. And so next week we're going to talk about this like this this really interesting um, contradiction of where where we're supposed to pray boldly and specifically, but then at the same time we're supposed to be humble and and accept God and 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 try to figure out what his, his, his will is in the world. And we're going to talk about how prayer shapes our perspective. And we're going to talk about our will versus God's will uh, in, over the next couple weeks. So I hope that you'll join us. But one thing we want to do uh, as a church family, I mean, we pray together every week. We, we come and we pray with the elders. And, uh, but we did this last year, so some of you may remember this as a practice. But on the back wall over there, we've, we've hung the, uh, the frame and the clothespins. And what we want you to do is if you have things that you would like people to pray for, we would like you to write those things down. If you feel like, man, I, I don't want to actually admit it you can you can be as vague as you want you can be anonymous that's totally fine but we, we want people we want our church to be sharing with one another in in this in this process of prayer and so write something down uh, there's already one on there from uh, from my son and it's pretty awesome um, but write something down and and hang it up there and then look for someone else's prayer and, and take that with you and commit to praying for this thing I mean it's just so valuable to know that people are praying for you Toward the end of this series, we're going we're gonna to do, we're going to challenge you guys. We're going to challenge you guys to do 40 days of prayer. 40 days. That's, all, that's a lot for some of us. Some of you just need to pray, pray for four seconds, and that would be an improvement. But we're going to challenge our church to do 40 days of prayer at the end of this uh, series. I just want to wrap up with this. Um, I got a call a couple weeks ago from one of our members who remembered me preaching on prayer a year ago. And I'm like, I'm so flattered that you remember something from a year ago. She remembered what I preached about a year ago because she, because we talked about prayer. And she's like, prayer is just not something that I do or I understand or can figure out. And so she said she was in this situation where she's in the hospital and somebody told her that they'd been praying for her and that meant so much to her. And she was like, you know what? I'm going to do that for somebody else. I'm going to tell them I'm praying for them and I'm going to actually do it. How often do we do that? I'll be praying for you. Right out the, right out the mind. But actually pray for them. 
And uh, she said she's, the next time she saw him, she told him that she had been praying for them. And this person broke down in tears and said, you have no idea what it means to think that another human being has me on their mind. How powerful that is. I want you to know that when you pray, that you have a universal, almighty Father in heaven that has you on his mind. How powerful is that when we pray?